Uh, we invite you to pick up a Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, uh, grab one uh, in the chair in front of you or behind you or to the side of you and turn to the third gospel. You can find the New Testament, which is about a third of the way into uh, an entire uh, Old Testament and New Testament. Go Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then turn to the, tw- the 20th chapter. And we're going to pick up again, knowing the truth about Jesus. And that was, that was Luke's stated instructions in, in terms of his writing the gospel, which is a record of the life of Jesus. And, and it's good news, but the good news is, is punctuated with things that, that cause us to be challenged as well. And so Jesus is in, is in his last week, the recorded week of here when he came the first time. And, and we see Jesus about to go to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, he spends all of his time, again, trying to reach out to people to capture their minds and their hearts, to speak about what it really means to know uh, the living God, but also what it means to live out that relationship with him. And, and as you see about that, as you, as you talk into people's lives, you have some people who receive what you have to say very readily, and then some people give opposition. They're not quite sure they want to buy what you're trying to sell. And so we pick up Jesus in this particular occasion where Jesus is being pestered by his, his enemies. And he's not at this moment being put on the cross, but he's, be, but he's trying to be entrapped by those who, who don't like what he has to say and the influence he, has, he is having on other people's lives. And so we're going to pick up the story in just a moment. But I've entitled the message, Clear Answers to Tough Questions. And as we think about the Bible, the Bible you know, speaks about the good news about Jesus, but also speaks about if you, if you follow that good news, what is it going to mean in your life? And as we think about it, Jesus gave a simple message, but not an easy message. Jesus said, uh, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me, which means that everything changes once you follow Jesus. And it's a progressive journey, but we need to be willing to give up leadership in our lives and, and give it to Jesus. But as, as you think about that, as you think of the message that's found in, in this book, and the Bible, Biblios, in the original language, just simply means book, there, there are a variety of ways people try to attack this book by saying, I just, I, just can't, I just can't buy what's in it. I just don't believe what it has to say. And one of the things that will, they will attack the Bible, saying, well, you know, the Bible, when you really look at it and you look at how other people have looked at it, you know, the Bible is open to anyone's interpretation. Have you ever heard that one? And they said, well, you know, people have read this book and tried to explain this book, and people come up with different conclusions. So, what you mean, what's the big deal? If, if anyone can go to this book and justify what they believe and what they think, then it's just a matter of your own opinion. Well, I, I want to I be, I, I want to start this way. The Bible is not always open to interpretation. Now, the only reason I put not always is there are parts in the Bible where we struggle with what is the meaning, because for a variety of reasons, and if I'm not careful, I'll preach a message on why that is so. But, but let's be honest, there, there, are, there are passages in God's Word, vast portions of God's Word, where it's really not open to anybody's interpretation. Uh, one of my favorite comments by Mark Twain is, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bothers me. It's the things in the Bible I do understand. You understand what I'm saying there or what he's saying there? I mean, when it is said so clearly, there is no other way to interpret it because he's put it down on the lower shelf for us all to understand. And and some have put it this way. As you think about when God speaks, he does not stutter. There's oftentimes when I speak, I know I speak a little bit fast for some of you. 
And, and there's a variety of reasons why I do that. Part of, when I get enthusiastic, I, I just speak fast. And so I'm enthusiastic about what's in this book. But what compounds that is not only at times do I speak fast, but sometimes I, I slur a little bit. I don't finish all my words. I, I figure you can, you can speak faster if you leave out the last three letters of most words, right? Well, that makes it a little bit more difficult to understand you know, what I'm saying, but I, I want to be very clear here. The, the Bible is very clear when, when God speaks clearly. And we're going to see that this morning as, as people try to come to Jesus and say, you know, what are you really, what are you, what are you really teaching? Have, have you got it right? And he puts it in very clear terms. And, and I want to say to all of us, as we think of the, the clearest statement of all God's word about how do we enter into a relationship with him is found in that verse that everyone can quote, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is only one way to interpret that. God loves you. There's something wrong in your relationship with him. That's why Jesus came. And if you come to that point in your life where you choose to believe him, you're not going to experience God's judgment, but you will receive God's reward and you'll spend eternity with him. So it's a matter, do you believe it or not believe it? That's the message. Now, you can wrestle whether you believe the message about Jesus is true, but it, but it is not confusing about what the message is. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who what? Believe in his name. So we all enter a relationship with God by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. He died in our place, paid the penalty for our sins, and rose again. And he gives us the invitation to receive him by believing in him or reject him. But as they were attacking Jesus in that day, they were trying to attack his credentials. Well, if you are God, then you've got to have answers to pretty tough questions. And wouldn't we agree with that? Uh, this is all for free. But as I think about what, why do I believe in Jesus is, is who he claimed to be. And there's a variety of reasons I've come to that point where I've become more and more convinced he is who he claimed to be. But, but one of the reasons is that it's called the if-then proposition. If God did become a man, in other words, and I was talking to a couple of great uh, uh, middle school students this, uh, just yesterday, and, and, and we were talking about things like this. And as we think about, well, if, if our, the call in our life is to believe in him, well, why should we believe in him? Well, if God were to become a man, then what would he be like? He would be just like who? Jesus. He would do the miraculous, say the miraculous. He would conquer death. He would fulfill any predictive statements about the one who is to come, he would be just like Jesus. And if he is God become man, then he'd be able to answer life's toughest questions. And that's what we're going to look at today. And, and if you want a fancy word, you like fancy words sometimes? Okay, this is called the perspicuity of Scripture. Just take that home and look it up. All right. But anyway, perspicuity simply means this, is that God wrote the Bible so that we could understand it. It's the clarity of God's Word. doesn't mean it's always easy to understand, but it's understandable. And just like other parts of life that, that we study, things, some, some subjects in, in school were harder for me to understand than other subjects. doesn't mean it couldn't be understood. This, I was a little slower than somebody else in the class. But the things that God wants us all to understand, He has put it plainly. And so let's look at Jesus doing that. And what we're going to do, and if you've looked at the outline already, you say, this is kind of a busy-looking out, busy outline. And I, I would agree with you on that, but um, 
But I want to simplify it a little bit. Basically, we're going to look at three questions that are asked Jesus. He's going to be asked the citizenship question, the future question, and the deity question. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to, to people who are trying to trip him up and actually give reasons why not to believe. And hopefully you wrestle with that when you think about why you believe what you believe. And maybe you're in, on that place right now. You're not sure what you believe. Is we're not afraid of people asking questions about our faith that we have a reason for the hope that is within us. And so you want to you be aware of the questions people are asking and, and how can we respond to them. But Jesus responds to them, and he gives us some, some ways to look at it. All right, beginning. Now, with that being the introduction, what is true about Jesus, and particularly as it relates to questions that people might ask him? Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem, oh, I'm in verse 20, chapter 21. All right, chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. And this parable is the story he told right before the section we're reading today. And he basically told a story. He said that he had authority, and he had authority because like John the Baptist had authority, and you can't figure John the Baptist out. You'll never figure me out because your heart's not right. And then he said, this is so important because if you don't get this right, judgment is coming. And for the Jews in that day, it was not only judgment personally if they rejected Jesus, but it was going to be a judgment nationally, which is a word picture for us is that God is serious, that, that this life is, is the test for the life that is to come. And, and so he just rocked their world. So much so, they said, he, he, he's telling this story about me. Are you talking to me? And the answer is yes, I'm talking to you. And so there's somehow we, we, we've got to take what Jesus is saying and, and make him look like a fool. And, and so this is their attempt. So they watched him, and, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor, which simply said that there were, there were some posers there. You know what a poser is? That's what, what I am when I go out there to surf. You know, I'm out there in the waves, and I'm on the board, and it looks like I'm going to surf, and then all I do is fall off the, the board when I, when I try to catch a wave. You know, I'm, I'm a poser. I, I'm looking like one thing, but I'm really not that, Okay. And so here are some people who look like they're really good. You know, they're really righteous. They, they look like they had their act together and really concerned about learning. But that's not what they were trying to do. They weren't asking a real question. They were looking at a question to trip Jesus up. And in verse 21, begin, continues on. It says, they questioned him. This is Jesus saying, teacher. They complimented him. We know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. I mean, you, you can't be more nice than they are right now to Jesus. And then they asked the question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Jesus always knew it was in the heart of man and the mind as well. Verse 24, show me a denarius, show me a, a, a coin. Um, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And this is an example again. Jesus doesn't always answer questions. Um, questions with questions, but he does it here. He says, they said Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and that was their goal. And being amazed at his answer, they became what? Silent. When, when you try to trip somebody up, maybe you're trying to make someone look like a fool by, by questions you're asking, and they always get you, then the best course of action is quit asking questions. Quit, quit trying to trip somebody else because all they're doing is making you look like a fool. 
And that's what Jesus was doing. And primarily, not because he was trying to condemn them at that moment, but he wanted to show truth that he really was who he claimed to be. And they would remember that, and some would repent and some would not. But what really is he doing here? In many ways, what were they trying to trip him up with? Because, again, they were trying to put him in a no-win situation. Well, should we pay taxes? And no matter what he said, yes or no, if that's all he said, then then they would try to to make him look out as someone who wasn't either loyal to Israel or or somehow he was ignoring the, the evil of the Roman Empire. But really, I think if you look at it and, and how that relates to us today, and of course what Jesus is saying, look, at we are, we're going to see this in a moment. We're, we're citizens of both worlds. Uh, for those who know the Lord, we're citizens of heaven as well as citizens here on earth. And so there's a place where we are to pay those who need to be paid, custom to whom custom is due, tax to whom taxes due. But really, he was saying something even much larger than that, I think, for us. It's so often, have you noticed that we're living in a, in a, in a nation right now that wants to polarize our, our nation politically? Have you noticed that? <laughs> have, have you ever seen that? And you know what's so interesting about that is not only are, are we polarizing each other nationally because of our political viewpoints, that's also happening within the church as well. And, and so often now, you know, people are, are labeled, whether they're a good Christian or a bad Christian, depending about which party they belong to. You know, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you on the left side or the right side? And, and somehow, depending upon your persuasion, you're more spiritual or you're more following God because this is your political viewpoint. And, and what I want to say here, it sounds to me like Jesus didn't take either party there, did he? He, he said, I'm not going to align myself with the zealots, okay, those who want to overthrow Rome. Don't pay taxes to them. And, and I'm not going to align myself like with the tax collectors either, uh, where we, I skim, skim off the top. I'm simply going to say that, that, that those in positions of governing authority, they ought to get what they are due. And so what I want to do is, is I want to kind of backtrack a little bit and say, are, are there some biblical principles we can look at that, that would speak to us about how do we function in a world that's polarized, particularly our world in the United States, when, when we are just polarized by our perspective on what ought to happen in Washington, D.C. Or, or in Sacramento and and uh, I just want to pull this out, you know. Uh, did, did, have you gotten these recently? The, the general, California general election, Tuesday, November 6th, the big manual there with all the different propositions. And then you get the general election, and they list all the judges you're supposed to know and figure out how you ought to vote for. And, and uh, you know, I, I've been wading through this. And let me tell you, if, if, if you have a hard time with insomnia, you know, just read through these things. They're just really great for you. Um, and, and so what I want to say today is that, well, we'll get into it. All right, let's, uh, let's look at it. Here's some passages, and this is not exhaustive, but I, but I think we need to speak, just like Jesus did, where we live, right? And sometimes Jesus would rub, you know, the people on the left and, and the people on the right who were following him, the zealots and the tax collectors. And he had both of them in his 12. Did you know, know this? That? He had both in his, those political parties. Remember, government authority is instituted by God. There's many passages, but let me just pick a couple. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It says, Daniel answered and said, and he was in Babylon, and, and Nebuchadnezzar was a guy in charge, wasn't exactly um, the most spiritual man who ever lived on this earth as, as he was brought into that empire. Answer said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. 
That sounds like a verse you put on your refrigerator, right? Isn't that great? God is awesome and with us. But then he goes on and says this, even politically. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to the man of understanding. Now, I know you, you think I never make an error, but Romans 3 should be Romans 13, 1 through 5. We used that reference even last week. In Romans 13, in the very beginning of that section, it says, There is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Now, what is that saying to us as Christ followers or people considering to be Christ followers? There is no one in a governing authority that isn't allowed to be there by who? God. Can I say this as bluntly as possible? Let me just let me ask it in the form of a question, and hopefully, it hits all of us today. When Barack Obama became president, was God on the throne? When, when Donald Trump became president, was God on the throne? So we believe that whoever is in positions of responsibility governing us today was allowed to be there by who? God. So if we're defaming the people in positions of authority today, now we don't have to agree with them all the time, but, it, but if we are defaming whom God has allowed to come in authority then we are fighting against who? Fighting against God. God has purposes beyond that we can imagine. And, and so we're going to see this in a moment, what our responsibility is. But our responsibility is not to attack people in positions of authority. Now, we, we can vote and we can try to influence, but after it happens, we now, we now are supporters whoever is in positions of responsibility. Now, Daniel had Nebuchadnezzar, and then he had a few other guys that weren't particularly... Um, models of examples, all right? And then when Paul wrote in Romans 13, who, who was in charge there? Probably Nero, Caesar. Any of the Caesars would not have been people we would like to have over at our house for, you know, dinner. And yet he said, look, you need to understand that you need to give honor to whom honor is due. In fact, that's really another point I want to make this morning. Not only should we remember government authority is instituted by God, and so we need to realize that we don't fight against God when people are in positions of power and authority. Number two, always do what is right and prayerfully honor people in positions of authority. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, and honor the who? Honor the king. And you say, well, that person isn't honorable. Well, his position is. And so we honor the person in positions of power and authority. I don't know any other, other wiggle way out of that. That's God's call for us. And, and they were trying to trip him up because he was, are you a zealot? Which I guess, would, is that a, that'd be a person maybe on the right. Are you a tax collector? That would be a person on the left. Or maybe you don't like that, the switch it. He says, I'm not, I'm not either. I'm supporting the one in position of responsibility. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I don't have it written out there, but it says, you know, what can we do specifically for those in positions of responsibility and authority? We can pray for them. 
In fact, he says, make petitions and prayers for every man. Okay? That's like, say, you know, that's like the Miss America contest. You know, what would you like? I'd like peace in the whole world. Well, how do you pray for every man? Then he says, pray for kings and those in authority. And so we ought to be praying for them. And then thirdly, well, are there any exceptions? Well, what if, what if we're living in a, in a situation where our faith and our government are in opposition to each other? And I would say this, only disobey man's laws if they are contrary to God's laws. And that's particularly when the government is forcing you to do that which is illegal or immoral or against a stated law of God, not just personal opinion. In, in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, they came up to, to Peter, James, and John and said, you've got to tell, quit telling people about Jesus. Said, well, let me ask you a question. Is it, is it, you be the judge. Is it better to obey God or, or to obey man? Acts chapter 5, verse 29 says this, but Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Let me just talk about what, obviously, just what happened. You know, Brett Kavanaugh got, got um, affirmed as our next uh, justice of, uh, I was thinking justice of the peace, the Supreme Court. Okay. <laughs> he probably thought, I, I'm dying going through this process. Okay is would God have still been on the throne if he had not been affirmed? Yes. Is, he still, is he on the throne that he was affirmed? Yes. You know, sometimes, can, 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 I, can I just step off for a moment and say, I'm going to give you my opinion. That's, you know, God has not told me to say this. Well, he doesn't speak to me audibly anyway. But is that I, I personally get offended when, when Christians go on Facebook on both sides I mean, I mean, committed Christians, at least they're, they're fervent for the Lord. And, and they're like, they're speaking for God. God is great because this happened. God is great because of this happened. Would God still have been great if it was the opposite? You say, we don't believe that, then we got a little God, not a big God. Now, we might not like everything that happens, but God is on the throne. And, and we trust him no matter what happens. It, it just, it's just amazing to me how, how all of a sudden, you know, God is only good if the good things happen that we like. God is good even when things happen we don't like. Isn't that true? Because he is our source of hope, not what happens in this world. Now, I, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved. Trust me, I, I, I read all that this past week, all right? And, and if you want to get another thing that makes me mad is when people complain about whoever is elected, and I say, well, did you vote? And they say, what? They say, no, I don't even want to hear a word from you. If you didn't vote, don't even talk to me. And of course, they say, well, my vote doesn't count much. Don't talk. Just stop, right? Just stop. In fact, I heard this. Uh, I have to be careful. I'm going to preach, not touch, you know. But, you know, I, I heard this from both sides, left and the right, as far as Kavanaugh. I, I heard people on the right and Christians on the right, and they said, I don't care whether he did it or not. We still ought to affirm him. And then I hear people on the other side say, I don't care that he didn't do it. We, still, we shouldn't affirm because it just looks bad. What? The issue is, did he do it or not? And you say, well, I think he did. Well, we, did you read the FBI report? I don't know. I didn't. 
Could they have gotten it wrong? Yes, they could have gotten it wrong. But the issue, it does matter whether he did or not. That's the issue. And you have Christians on both sides. You have what we call progressive Christians and ultra-conservative Christians. And they're speaking like they have the voice of God, knowing exactly whether he ought to be voted in or out. And it didn't matter to them about the facts. I mean, what have we come to in the Christian world? You understand what I'm saying here? I mean, we're saying, saying, as long as they're on my side, it doesn't matter. But if it's on their side, then I can attack it. That should not be. We we are concerned about what really happened. And and we don't have all. And (laughs) I'm already wasting my time. Look, I've been in personal situations where people, they were friends and even family, and I was convinced they were innocent, and I found out they were guilty. I know that surprised you think I know all, hear all, see all, but you know, I, you know I, 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 would have gone to the, I would have gone to the wall for them, and I found out they were guilty. On the other side, I've been in a situation where I was the only one voting against what was happening, and I was in the right, and they were in the wrong, which, which means we're gonna, we're gonna, that's going to happen, but you know what? God is still on the throne, and we need to let God be God. Be involved in the process, but, but not speak for God that he hasn't said directly in here. I don't know about you, but it doesn't say anything about Brett Kavanaugh in here. You know, it, it doesn't say anything about the propositions that I'm going to vote on. And, and, I, and I, I need to use my mind when I vote. And I'm going to use a, a bad analogy, but not my heart. Some people get so caught up emotionally that it doesn't matter what their mind is saying. It's just their heart. And, and use your mind in the best possible way and then trust God that, that he's going to be sovereign and, and be involved in the process, but realize that you don't know everything. And you don't understand everything. And, and you don't want to respond just by emotionally. You want, to, you, want to, you want to do what's best. And sometimes we don't know what's best, right? And we just do our best. So, so basically, that's what Jesus was doing with the, with the do you pay your taxes? Well, who's on, who's on the coin? It's, it's Caesar. Well, then give him what he's due. And he didn't get involved in the peripherals. Are you a zealot or are you a tax collector? I'm just a responsible citizen of Israel, and I'll pay my taxes. Of course, I wish I could pay my taxes the way he did. He just took a fish and put, put out a gold coin and paid them. But, but you know, he, he paid his taxes, right? We don't have a whole lot of time for the rest of the message. All right. Um, and then I made allusion to this. Understand we have a dual citizenship. Romans 13, 7 says the same idea that we looked at before. Render to, to what is due uh, people, to those custom to custom, uh, fear to whom it should be feared, and honor to whom is honor. But Philippians 3.20 really says this. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're thinking somehow that we're going to bring the kingdom here on earth through our own efforts, then I think you are totally misinformed. The kingdom of God is going to happen when Jesus decides to come. And that's the only time when everything will be made right. Now, we are to occupy until he comes. We are to be righteous in the land. We are to influence as best we can. But I have no expectations that whoever gets voted in in Washington, D.C. or Sacramento is going to make everything right. Why? Because 
There's sinfulness in every heart. We live in a fallen world. And only when Jesus comes again will everything be made right. But in the meantime, we realize that we want to represent our rebirth place, which is heaven, in an honorable way. So Jesus amazes them because he, he deals with the issue is just be responsible with what you are as a citizen of this world, but realizing you're following the leadership of the one who's in the world to come. All right, eight minutes. We're going to get it done. All right. Is Jesus, looking at the future question, is Jesus really teaching there's life after death? And you think, well, that's an easy one to answer. Well, not for them. Look at, and they used a very complicated argument. Look at verse 27. Now there came to him, this is Jesus, some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, and they questioned him saying, teacher, Moses, write for us, if a man's brother dies having a wife and he's childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now this is a a, uh, this is from the Mosaic Law, which says, okay, you need to keep the family going. And so if your brother dies, then you need to help him raise his children. And so you, you, you establish a whole relationship. And if you're looking around and saying, I, I, I hope my brother never dies or hope my, you know, <laughs> hope my husband never dies. We're not under the Mosaic Law anymore, all right? So just, just relax there a little bit. And, and the people who were attacking him was the, were the Sadducees. And the two main religious parties were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And and the Pharisees, uh, uh, they were the conservatives. And the Sadducees, interesting enough, and this is the, the cliche that people say, well, how do you remember which one is which? The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they didn't believe there's life after death. And, and the reason they didn't believe, they said, this doesn't make any sense. They were starting to use their head. This, I, this can't be true because if you've had seven marriages, well, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? You're going you to have seven wives and... And so they attacked him that way. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her in the same way. All seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the women died also. I kind of wonder about that woman, all those men dying. But anyway, in, in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven hadn't married her. Now that would be kind of confusing, right? Well, Jesus answers. He, he, he doesn't answer with a question. He answers with a theological response. He says, The sons of, the, of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. And how are you considered worthy? By believing the one who is worthy. It's not how good you are, but how good he is, and you put your faith in him. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels. Didn't say you are angels. Okay. Those cute little girls that you like call angels, they aren't angels now, and they're not going to be angels, but they're going to be like angels and that they're not going to die. And are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, when he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, there's a lot of things I can tell you about the Sadducees. Not only did they not believe in the resurrection, but it's interesting. They took their, their Old Testament Bible. You know, I had scrolls, but let's say they had a book like ours. They would take the first five books, leave it, and then from that book on, they would just tear it out. So they, they didn't believe in the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Kings, first and the second Kings and the Chronicles and those prophets that are hard to understand. They said, well, those are good writings, but they aren't really authoritative from God. I mentioned to you a few years ago, I was... We were, uh, where were we at, Alice? What was that lake in Canada? Um, the real pretty one? Um, 
What? Lake Louise. I shouldn't have forgot that because that's my mother-in-law's first name. Okay, Louise. Okay, Lake Louise. Uh, and it's a beautiful place. And we were eating, we were eating uh, dinner in the whatever that place was. Okay, uh, you know, in the, the restaurant. Okay, the restaurant. <laughs> I can speak even faster if I leave out words, you know. Yeah, I can just say like that. So, so we're there. And all of a sudden, I, 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 I shared with this with some of you, is that I, w- I was there. And all of a sudden, I heard this conversation over. And, and they had this religious conversation. So it, it tweaked my ear. And, and this, and this uh, Jewish man, I, I, and he identified himself that way. And, and all he said... The, the Bible doesn't teach there's a heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that when you die, there's another place you're going to go. You know, and I, you, know, I was, you know, I was with Al, so I wanted to be nice. And so I was just listening there for a while. And then he kept saying it over and over and over again, you know. And, and so, I, you know, I had to bump into it. I said, well, you know, are you really sure about that? Okay. And so, uh, well, not in the first five books of the Bible. Are you really sure about that? And the reason I had at least an initial answer, because I'd read this passage before, the, the you know, in, in the first five books, it says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that puts it in the present tense. I mean, God is not a God of someone's dead, because that person's dead. He doesn't have a God. Even God himself in the very beginning said he's the God of the living. And if a God is a living, that person living, if he's not living here on earth, has to be living what? Somewhere. And these are the people that are under judgment. They are under God's reward. So that seems indicated. Well, he goes, well, I never really thought. Oh, that can't be. Well, that's just, that's just a phrase. I said, well, how about, well, I got some of the passage in here with you. Is it, how about in, um, how about Enoch? Who's Enoch? I said, well, he's in Genesis chapter 5. So all the days of Enoch were, were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God what? He took him. Well, where did he take him? He's not here on earth. Sounds, seems to me, implies that, that Enoch had a place to go, right? And then um, Exodus 3.6 is the passage, one of the passages he could refer to as God as the God of the one that's living, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then you have a 2 Samuel chapter you know, 12. And this is a longer story that I don't have time to really tell. But, but, but as, as David um, was losing the, the first son of his relationship with Bathsheba, and it appeared that, that God was going to take him, um, physically, that he was going to die, he began to pray and fast and just be fervently asking God that he would preserve him and heal him. But then after he died, this is the statement of Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, but now he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Of course, David did not have the ability to do that, so he's, the answer to that is no. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Well, here's the perspicuity of Scripture. Well, what does that mean? There's, there's really only one way to take that. Now, David could be wrong, but what David is saying is, I can't bring him back from the dead and now be a, man, a person in the living here on this earth. But when I die, I can go to be where he is. And obviously, you have other passages of Scripture that really speak about that. When we think about life after death... It's not just wishful thinking on our part. This is what the Bible teaches. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says, basically it says this. It says, you know, many are, are in the dust, and some of them in the dust, they're going to they're gonna go on to everlasting life. And the implication is there are some in, that are already in dust physically that they're going to go to everlasting contempt or judgment. We are eternal beings. The question is, is where are we going to spend eternity? And Jesus put it about as plain as you can put it in, in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall what? Live. And then in case, in case you don't understand the, the depth of what I'm saying, you're going to live even if you die. 
And then he, then he gives the invitation. He says, do you believe this? So as we think about Jesus answering tough questions, he, he, he answers the earthly question, what are we supposed to do politically? We're supposed to realize that God is always on the throne. We are to be responsible. We ought to do what needs to be done wherever we're living, but put our trust in him and, and not in man. And by the way, if you think about life's most important question, what's going to happen when you die? Quite frankly, that was the, the question that haunted me when I turned to Jesus. I said, I, I know people die. I want to know what happens when I die. And there's only one who's come back from the dead who really gave us the answer to that. That's Jesus. And so Jesus answers that question. And we're going to save the third. I'm going to show you I can stop, okay? We're going, to save, we're going to save that third question for another time, all right? Maybe even next week, all right? Is that when Jesus speaks about things that matter, he, he does speak clearly. He sometimes uses complicated arguments to, to explain what he is saying. But if you just think it through a little bit and read it clearly, then he'll, he'll enlighten us as to what is really true. And what we really want to understand is that the one up here or the one in a small group that's maybe leading the discussion, we're not the source of authority. This book is. Even the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, he describes some people he had went to. He said, you know, the people in in Berea were much more noble-minded. They were much more heart-close to God because they took what I said and then they began to search the Scriptures eagerly to see if the things I was saying were actually true. And so we don't have to defend ourselves or defend our interpretations. We just need to have clear explanations of what the Bible has to say and put it plainly. There are things in this book that are difficult to understand. Even Peter said that about Paul's rights. And, you know, there's some things he says that are kind of difficult to put together. But the things that God says clearly, and everything is really clear, we just don't have quite a full understanding of it now. But he says it that we might know him and follow him. When we take communion this morning, that's really what we're saying. I've come to that place in my life where I've surrendered my life to Jesus. I realized I desperately needed him because of my sin. I was guilty before him. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died in my place, which means I should have been receiving that judgment. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, which is separation from God. But he died in my place so that I could have life in his name. And if you know Jesus, we invite you to participate in communion in just a moment. If you don't know Jesus, then come to that place right now and just make that step. Admit your need and turn from your sin. Believe that Jesus died and rose again on your behalf. And then commit. Commit to follow Jesus as your Lord, God, and Savior, inviting him into your life to be your Savior, the forgiver of your sins, to be your Lord, to be the leader of your life.